0: our first reading this morning is taken from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 to 25. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as near as relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, "'Buy my field at Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin. "'Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, "'buy it for yourself.' "'I knew that this was the word of the Lord, "'so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel "'and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. "'I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, "'and weighed out the silver on the scales. "'I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy "'containing the terms and conditions, "'as well as the unsealed copy,' And I gave this deed to Baruch son of Nariah, the son of Masaiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who'd signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for our father's sins into the laps of their children after them. O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land you'd sworn to give to their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster upon them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city because of the sword and famine and plague The city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed.
1: further reading in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verses 26 to 44. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking this city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down, along with the houses where the people provoke me to anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal, and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. They turned their backs to me and not their faces, though I taught them again and again. They would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their abominable idols in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable sin thing and so make Judah sin. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without men or animals, for it has been handed over to the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord.
0: Thanks, Carol. I am yours, and you are mine. Words of assurance... But it has to be said that Jeremiah found belonging to God and living his life for God really tough. It was an experience that drove him actually to the depths of despair. He was probably quite a young man when he heard God calling him, assuring him that God knew him inside out, even before he was taking shape in his mother's womb. And that before he was even born, God had set him apart to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah's response was to ask, why me? I don't know how to say anything. I'm only a child. And God's response amounts to quite a harsh, unsympathetic answer, really. You'll do what you're told. You'll go where I send you, and whatever I tell you to say, you're going to say it. But don't be afraid of anyone, because I will be with you to rescue you from them. Then the Lord touched Jeremiah's mouth and said, I've put my words in your mouth. What a privilege. What a responsibility. What a burden. Because nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. All he got in response to proclaiming the word of the Lord was ridicule, mocking, insults, and reproach. There are times when he said, I've had enough. That's it. I'm not going to say another word. But then the word of the Lord was like a fire in his heart, consuming all his bones, and try as he might, he could not keep it in. But it was not experience that drove Jeremiah to the depths of depression. There were times when he cursed the day he was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and end my days in shame, he asks. And he doesn't get an answer. He feels betrayed. When he started out, God's words were his joy and his heart's delight. But as time went by, all that changed. When other people were out partying, Jeremiah sat at home alone, full of pain and bitterness. Why is my pain unending? Why is my wound incurable? Why can't it be healed? He accused God of letting him down, of being like a deceitful brook, like a spring of water that fails. He ends up totally disillusioned the promise given to him when he's first called is reiterated the lord will be with him to rescue him and save him so he must not give in the lord will make him a fortified wall of bronze so that even if people fight against him they will never overcome him so jeremiah did stand firm but it was costly and painful and difficult and he really wonders what on earth is going on Here he is calling the people to repentance and no one is responding. Has he just been sent on a fool's errand? Has God set him up to fail? He wants to know. Sure, God, you're always righteous, but I just don't see it. Where is your justice? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those faithless people live at ease? How come they have such an easy time of it? Actually, isn't that just because you've planted them in a place where they will take root and prosper and bear fruit? Actually, isn't all this down to you? Look at what's going on. The land lies parched. The grass in every field has withered away. The birds and the animals have perished and all because the inhabitants of the land are wickedly sinning with impunity. And there were times when Jeremiah had just had enough. Enough. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered, then he says. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. Hardly the most loving or forgiving of prayers. Yet Jeremiah tells it like it is. His book serves as a reminder to us that prayer is not about following liturgical correct formulations so that we have the right words to say at the right time in just the right way. There are times when prayer is just sheer naked honesty with God. An outpouring of grief and anger and confusion in the face of all the injustice and suffering and evil in the world. Yet at other times, Jeremiah's anger turns to grief and sorrow at the plight of his people. When he sees them suffering, his anger is replaced by pity and sorrow at the tragedies unfolding before his eyes. He sees servants going to the well to draw water, but finding that the wells are dry, coming back with empty jars, their heads covered in dismay and despair. The ground is cracked by drought. The farmers are distraught. Wild animals abandon their newborn offspring because there is no food. Thirsty animals pant for water on the barren hillsides, searching in vain for green pasture land. Do something, Jeremiah implores God. Our sins testify against us and our backsliding is great. But you, you are the hope of Israel. You are our saviour in times of distress. So why are you treating us like strangers? This is your homeland. Why do you treat us as if you're just passing through on your way to somewhere else? Why are you behaving like a man who's been taken by surprise? Why are you just like a warrior who's lost his strength and is powerless to rescue anyone? You are among us, Lord. We bear your name. Don't forsake us. God's reply is shocking. Don't pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, the famine, and the plague. But Jeremiah still doesn't understand what's going on. If that's the case, how come all the other prophets are telling the nation that they won't suffer sword or famine, that you're going to give them lasting peace in this place? And God says, well, I didn't send any of them. All those people prophesying this message in my name, I didn't appoint them, I didn't speak to them. They're prophesying false visions, divinations, idolatries and delusions. They've dreamed up in their own fevered imaginations. Those who say that no sword or famine will touch this land will perish by sword and famine. Jeremiah I can't believe it. So have you rejected us completely then? Do you despise your people? Why have you afflicted us so badly that we can't be healed? We'd hope for peace, but nothing good has happened. We'd hope for healing, but all you've given us is in terror. And despite being told not to pray, Jeremiah can't stop praying. He carries straight on, because he can't get these people out of his heart. For the sake of your name, don't despise us. Remember your covenant with us. Don't break it, because our hope is in you. What other source of hope is there but you? And as you read through Jeremiah, you see he's all over the place, in his prayers, as his emotions swung him first one way, then the other. One day he's praying for God to unleash his judgment and condemnation, another he's praying for God to have mercy. He's inconsistent in his prayers, but he's always true to his feelings. Sometimes it seems as if Jeremiah and the Lord are poles apart, not on the same page at all, in terms of what's going on and what needs to happen. At other times, Jeremiah's heart is so attuned to God's, you can't really tell who's speaking. Is it Jeremiah or the Lord who cries out, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Who's talking here? Is it Jeremiah? Is it the Lord? You read the commentaries, they disagree. Nobody knows because at that point in time, When Jeremiah prays, his words become God's words. His feelings, God's feelings. His thoughts, God's thoughts. That's how prayer works. It's what happens. And as you read through Jeremiah, time and again, you get the question, why? 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 Why me? Why did you bring me into the world only to experience so much pain and suffering? Why have you done this? Why have you not done that? Why are you letting people get away with murder? Why don't you step in and bring them all to justice? Why don't, you have a little pe- pity? Why don't you have a little pity and show your people mercy? Questions, questions, questions. And sometimes prayer is like that. Questioning God, challenging God, probing God, trying to figure out what on earth is going on. And sometimes Jeremiah gets a reassuring answer. Sometimes he gets an awful answer. Sometimes. There's just silence. But as you read through Jeremiah, you see that prayer is very clearly a dialogue between him and the Lord. It's not just Jeremiah speaking, it's God speaking back to him. And you have to wonder actually what lies behind all those passages where it says, this is what the Lord says. Was Jeremiah kind of recording this on his dictaphone? Was it downloaded in his mind? Did he hear, as it were, an audible voice? Was it just a strong impression about something? Did words pop into his head as he spoke them or as he wrote them down? Sometimes God communicates by way of a picture. Apart from the dictaphone suggestion, all those have a good degree of plausibility because there is no one single way in which God communicates with his people. But remember this, God does communicate with us. Prayer is not just running through a shopping list of requests before we switch out the lights and go to sleep at night. It is a dialogue with God. It is an encounter with God. And whether you're thinking, or speaking, writing, visualising, drawing a picture, sitting in silent contemplation, if you invite God to be part of that process, don't be surprised if he chips in from time to time. Because prayer is about as much about what he wants to say to us as it is about what we have to say to him. Which brings me to that prayer in Jeremiah 32, which was read to us earlier. A prayer with an unspoken why in it. Jerusalem, surrounded by armies, under siege, all is lost, and bizarrely Jeremiah is told to go and buy a field. Why? What on earth is the point of doing that? The whole land has been overrun by the Babylonian army, and all this is God's doing. Jeremiah rehearses the story of the nation, how God brought them out of Egypt, into the promised land, gave it to their forefathers, but the people did not obey God or follow his law or do what he commanded, and therefore the Lord had brought this disaster upon them. And Jeremiah has to acknowledge, Lord, you, you've acted within your rights here. You've been consistent with, what, with your character. You're a God who rewards and punishes everyone in accordance with their conduct, and with what their deeds deserve. So you've been righteous in this respect. And so the city in the grip of sword and famine and plague is about to be handed over to the Babylonians and yet, Lord, you tell me to buy this field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. What is the point of that? Why? And The answer comes back. Yes, Jeremiah. This city will be set on fire. I will remove it from my sight. But from wherever I've banished my people, I will gather them up and bring them home and let them live in safety again. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and of action so that they will always fear me and I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will never stop doing good to them. Because judgment is not God's last and final word. Paul Jeremiah, all those years, there he was forecasting doom and gloom, judgment and destruction, And no one wanted to listen. And now when the predicted disaster is happening and the Babylonian army is on the doorstep, then he's given a message of hope and restoration. He always found himself swimming against the tide of popular opinion. But then that's what it's like when you live for God. Jeremiah's heart was completely broken. And we see here all too clearly just how costly following God can be sometimes. Yet the words of hope, the words of an everlasting covenant, the words of forgiveness and restoration that God gave to Jeremiah in the face of judgment and destruction, those words contain promises that have resonated down the centuries. Promises that hold true for us today because they're promises that were sealed with the blood of Jesus. God has promised He will put his law in your heart and write it on your mind. God has promised that he will be your God and you will be his people. God has promised that you will all know him from the least of you to the greatest. God has promised that he will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. All promises given to Jeremiah, guaranteed by Jesus available to us today if we put our lives in God's hands. Out of the crucible of Jeremiah's suffering came life-changing, life-giving words of salvation. And they were given at a time of darkness and despair. And they needed to be given at that time in that context because only that way can we be sure that they will hold good for us as well when we find ourselves at rock-bottom. We are the beneficiaries in that respect of Jeremiah's suffering. Wherever you find yourself today, God is with you. God's words and God's promises are available to you. How will you respond?